This morning, we're simply going to look at some passages concerning the birth of Messiah. We're going to begin in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So it's in the sixth month, and you usually think of it as being the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which it is, but it's also the sixth month of John the Baptist. He was conceived six months earlier, and so he's a person in existence, and so it's in his sixth month that the angel Gabriel comes to Nazareth. Gabriel is one of two holy angels mentioned by name in the Bible. Michael is the other. And he's referred to as an archangel, uh, that is a chief angel, in Jude chapter 1 and verse 9, where he is said to have a dispute with the devil, which is another named angel, actually. It's Lucifer, but he's not a good angel, of course, anymore. They had a dispute over the body of Moses. And Michael's the only angel referred to as an archangel specifically. But in Daniel 10.13, he is spoken of as one of the chief angels, indicating that there may be others who hold the same rank. But no others are named you know, as he. Now Michael appears uh, as a mighty battle angel. In Revelation chapter 12, um, just part of this chapter, verses 7 through 9 says, War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. That dragon, he's named Lucifer also. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, all those names for Lucifer, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. In Daniel 12, Michael's also mentioned in regard to end times prophecy. He has a role to play. Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. He's talking to Daniel, so he's talking about he's the great prince who watches over the sons of Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So Michael sort of oversees Israel and is particularly involved in end times events and battles and war, but Gabriel appears to have a primary role as the interpreter of prophecy to men, for example, Daniel and Zechariah, and a proclaimer of Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, and a proclaimer of the coming of the Messiah, the Savior. Previous to our passage in Luke 1, he has appeared to Zechariah to announce the birth of John the Baptist, and John was struck with muteness when he did not believe the message of Gabriel. And he's told in Luke 1, 19 and 20, the angel says to him, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. Oops. And was sent to speak to you to bring these, you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. 
And so now Gabriel comes to Mary's house and we're told that she is a descendant of David. She is a betrothed virgin. A betrothal was as binding as marriage. But the relationship had not yet been consummated. In verse 28 of Luke 1, it says, And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at this saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Nowadays, we'd probably think, you know, it was a marketing call or something. And then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So Mary is troubled. That is, she's agitated, greatly troubled. It's the only place this word is used in the New Testament. She's almost certainly a teenager, perhaps even a younger teenager, so we can understand her agitation at the angel's greeting. She's just a girl. She probably didn't think there was anything special about her for which she should be favored. Marriages were arranged for youth in those days, and they tended to marry young. Many teach that Joseph was much older, but we do not have any scriptural reason for thinking so. I think it has more to do with supporting the false idea that Mary remained a perpetual virgin than anything else. And so the other children then are explained as Joseph's from a previous marriage. It does appear that Joseph has departed the scene by the time Jesus enters his, his ministry because he's not mentioned after that point. But James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, as we read in Matthew 13:55, and his sisters, so he had, Jesus had at least one sister, they're half-siblings of Jesus. As we see in Matthew 1:25, it says Joseph did not know her, that is, consummate the marriage, until after Jesus was born. Now, Jesus technically is an only child. He's the only son of his father and mother, and he's the only son of his father in heaven. I tell people I'm an only child. I have two half-brothers, two half-sisters, but I'm the only child of my father and mother, so I'm an only child. But we're told in John 7 that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him, but, it, but they did after the resurrection, and they were in the upper room with the other disciples in Acts 1.14. It must have been something for them to realize that their brother was literally God come in the flesh and them not knowing it. As many in his hometown of Nazareth also did not believe. I mean, he was so normal. He was entirely good, but his time to reveal himself had not yet come. Gabriel goes on to say some things that may be further agitating for a young maiden from Nazareth, but the angel has encouraged her not to be afraid. And so in verse 31, he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. There were a lot of guys named Jesus in those days. It's actually the same name as Joshua in the Old Testament or Yeshua is a shortened version. Uh, And it it means Yahweh is salvation. Uh, Greek is Jesus. Hebrew is Yeshua or Yahashua is the longer version. And, of course, he has many other names. You know, we sang a song this morning about some of his other titles, some of his other names. Verse 32, it says, He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So, you know, she 
angels, Gabriel's telling this to Mary. And she's like, talking about me and the baby, you know, and this stuff about him. Wow. He'll be called the son of the highest. But he'll also be the son of David, his father David. He'll give him, give him that throne. So he's the son of David, the son of God, the son of man. We will look at this more in the passage we have come to in the Gospel of Mark when we resume our study there. Uh, Mark 12:35. Uh, Jesus asked them a question after they've been grilling him with different questions. And it says, Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? So he's going to be asking them about this. We'll see their answer and how he responds. Well, verse 34 says, Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? Uh, you know, I am a virgin. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One is to, who is to be born will be called the Son of God. I mean, there are a lot of young women in Israel during these days, if they were expecting the Messiah, that you know they knew that somebody was going to be bearing the Messiah. And you know, will it be me? Will it be you know? And here, Mary and her son would be called the Son of God, Son of David, Son of God. It's a spiritual conception that has a material effect. There is much about it that's still a mystery, still much that we do not know. We don't want to go beyond what is written. But how astounding these words would be to the ears of Mary. In verse 36, the angel continues and says, Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. This encouraging message to Mary, you know. Nothing's impossible for God. So what I'm telling you, you know, you're... Your relative Mary, or Elizabeth, she's already six months pregnant, and she was barren. And Mary says, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary accepts the proclamation of the angel with grace, humility, and faith. In verse 44, For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, something missing there, isn't it? Verse 39, Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. So after the angel tells her about this, she thinks, I'm going to go visit Elizabeth to see what's going on. And there's confirmation for her, right? Oh, she's pregnant. Maybe that wasn't just a, you know underdone potato that I had. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So here's a baby in the womb, a baby in the womb, a human being responding just to the voice of Mary. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Here she's speaking by the Holy Spirit. She recognizes that Mary is pregnant with the Son of God, her Lord. Amazing. 
For indeed, this is verse 44, For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. This baby has joy. <laughs> and then concludes, Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which her to- were told her from the Lord. So Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of my Lord. The word Lord is kurios in the Greek, which was used either of God or of a human master, but clearly it's being used of God here. Mary, the mother of God. The title, much abused now, was originally intended as a defense of the deity of Christ, not an exaltation of Mary. Jesus is God and Mary is the chosen vessel of God to bring him into the world as a man. She is favored and blessed forever. But clearly, the fruit of her womb, Jesus, is blessed on a whole other level. Interesting that John the Baptist recognizes the voice of Mary even in the womb and realizes intuitively that she's the mother of the Messiah. That's why he leaps for joy. Zechariah was told by Gabriel concerning John in, back in Luke 1.15, uh, this is what he said about John. He will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He's going to have be like a Nazarite. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So here's John the Baptist in his mother's womb filled with the Spirit. Amazing. Amazing thing. And then we this follows uh, Mary's prophecy known as the Magnificat. In verse 46, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. As always, this is all taking place probably in Elizabeth's kitchen or something. You know. uh, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. That tell us, tells us that Mary was not sinless as some teach. There's a doctrine called the Immaculate Conception. Many people think that's referring to the conception of Jesus. That's not what the doctrine teaches. It's that Mary was immaculately conceived or conceived without sin. So she was a sinless person, according to that doctrine. That's not, you know, she said, God's my Savior. If you're immaculately conceived, you don't need a Savior. Uh, There was a fellow I used to work with, and we got on this topic, you know, probably somebody else introduced it, because at that point we were tag-teaming, you know, witnessing it. Uh, So... We got, you know, and I think he asked me, you know, well, what's the Immaculate Conception? Is that about Jesus? You know, and so we got talking about what it actually was. And one of the guys there began defending the doctrine, you know, of the Immaculate Conception. And so um, he was saying, well, Jesus needed a clean vessel to come into. So she had to be sinless so Jesus could come into a sinless vessel. And I said, well, if that's the case, then Mary needed a sinless vessel, and the one before her. And I said, they, they go all the way back to the beginning. You know? and, and he said, well, it had to start somewhere. And I said, yes, it started with Jesus. <laughs> we had a lot of fun on that. Uh, so she needed a Savior herself. Uh, and in verse 48, she goes on to say, He has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. And she is. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. It's all exalting God, not exalting herself. 
And His mercy is on those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has shown strength with His arm. He scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's prophesying here. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He's helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His seed forever. And Mary remained in with her about three months and returned to her house. So she left around the time John the Baptist was due to be born. So she's hanging out there for three months. Meanwhile, Matthew chapter 1, and verse 18, it gets complicated. The birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Of course, Joseph doesn't have a clue to this at this point. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Well, I don't know what's been going on here with Mary, but, you know, and I don't really want to see her killed or something like that, but no way I can go through with this is Joseph's thing. This presumed unfaithfulness of Mary was legitimate grounds for divorce or even stoning if the offense were to be pressed. Joseph only desired to be released from the relationship. But there's a rescue here in verse 20. While he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And the angel's not named here saying, Joseph, son of David. Oh, he's the son of David too. Mary's a descendant of David. He's the son of David. Do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So they were betrothed. But you see, it calls Mary his wife. There there had to be a divorce if this relationship was to be broken up, even though they had not come together as husband and wife. Tells him, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. These are glad tidings, wonderful words of prophecy being spoken, and yet, this is going to introduce an extremely stressful time and an extremely stressful um, future for all these people involved. In, In the midst of... God moving and the joy and the blessing. Well, you know, from reading the New Testament. This angel that appears is unnamed. Uh, Joseph has several dreams which include the appearances of angels over the course of Jesus' early life. We see that Joseph is also of the line of David and Joseph is being brought up to speed on current events. And he follows through with the marriage. And we might think, he, he might say, Lord, why didn't you tell me sooner? <laughs> but he does things according to his own Tommy, that is God, which is perfect and not perfectly perceived. Just as Gabriel told Mary, Joseph is told that the child is conceived of the Holy Spirit. In verse 22, we're told, All this was done and it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name 
Jesus, as the angel had said. So Matthew comments here, citing the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, The virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. The Greek word used here is only ever used to mean a virgin, a person who has never had a sexual relationship, not merely a young maiden. As Mary asked Gabriel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Jesus did not have a human father. The prophecy says they shall call his name Emmanuel or God with us. This is quite literal. His parents named him Jesus as the angel commanded. And when men came to understand who he is, they called him Emmanuel. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we're told, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that, that was made. So we have the Creator there with God in the beginning. God the Father, God the Son, we know the Spirit was there as well. In verse 14 of John 1, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here's this one coming into the world. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it says, It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So they all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. Now, Quirinius was governor of Syria from 6 to 9 A.D. That's too late for Jesus' birth. Um, and we know that from historical records. But there's a good historical evidence that he was also governing the region in the first decade B.C. Luke mentions his second governorship, also mentioned by Josephus in Acts 5.37. Uh, this is Gamaliel speaking about those who have risen up in rebellion. He says, After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And this is the historical time period of that second census. But the census Luke mentions here is the one that first took place or first came to pass under Quirinius. The idea in the original language is that, 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 is that this was the first enrollment. Using a census for taxation was common in ancient Rome. So Luke calls this one the first enrollment to distinguish it from the well-known enrollment in 6 A.D., that he later mentions in Acts 5.37. Justin Martyr wrote in the middle of the 2nd century, like 150, and he said in his own day that more than 100 years after the time of Jesus, you could look up the registers of the same census that Luke mentions. And so Justin Martyr's testimony you know, is that those records of the census when Jesus, um, Joseph, and Mary went to Bethlehem were still in existence. At that point, they don't, we don't have them any longer, but they could be rediscovered at some point. Now, Bible critics have long castigated Luke for supposedly inaccurate historical references. For example, titles of city or state officials. Yet, each time a piece of archaeology was discovered concerning one of these errors, 
Each time, mind you, Luke was the one who was found to be correct. Indeed, only a man who lived at the time would have known these historical facts accurately because the people who came later didn't, and they got it wrong. But Luke was right when things were discovered. Luke's accuracy as a historian used to be questioned, but archaeological and historical studies by William Ramsey and others have shown that all his references to names, places, and events are quite reliable, entirely apart from the further assurance of divine inspiration. When you read the writings of Luke, or really any other biblical author, you're reading accurate history. In this case of Quirinius, an inscription was found on a stone fragment in 1764 that mentions a man who governed Syria twice during the reign of Augustus. The name is not included on the fragment, but the details are consistent with what we read in the scriptures. So God uses this census then to move Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem in fulfillment of Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. This prophecy of the one who would come, and he's, he's going to be coming from Bethlehem, as uh, later some of the scholars know. On verse 7 of Luke 2, it says, She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Well, this angel is not named that appears to the shepherds, but this angel appears. You know, he's going to be joined by this heavenly host in a little bit. But there are shepherds out here. Uh, he's born. He gets put in a manger, swaddling clothes. There's no room in the inn. Jesus is Christ the Lord. It says here, Born to you this day is, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He did not become the Christ, as New Age and mystical teachings insist. He was born a Savior and the Messiah. This is good news for all people. In verse 12 it says, This will be the sign to you. He's giving a sign to the shepherds. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. This sign to the shepherds would be a baby who is being treated as a newborn lamb. In Micah chapter 4 and verse 8, we read about the watchtower of the flock, or in Hebrew, Migdal Adar. According to the life and times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim, a Jewish believer who lived in the 18, late 1800s, Migdal Adar was the location where the Messiah was to be revealed. The watchtower stood as a place of protection for the city from approaching enemies, but it was also utilized by shepherds to watch over the specific flocks from which sacrificial Passover lambs were taken. So these guys would be out in the tower watching over the flocks day and night. So they're watching over the flocks by night. These are special shepherds that were trained by the priest what to look for. And when they saw a lamb that was getting ready to give birth because there were certain behaviors these lambs would, would exhibit, then they would 
take that lamb and make sure the or take the sheep, make sure the lamb got birthed, and then they would wrap the lamb in cloths and place the lamb in a manger. These mangers were uh, stone troughs; they weren't wooden. You didn't you didn't build feed troughs out of wood because it would rot with the the food and the water that would be in those. And so they had these stone, and these have been discovered as well, these archaeological discoveries, these stone mangers, so the lamb. And so that was the, if they, they would look at the lamb and say, is it a perfect lamb? Is it suitable for sacrifice? And if it was, then they would wrap it in these cloths and they would put it in this. So this was for the lamb's protection, so it wouldn't be damaged in any way. So these weren't ordinary shepherds. They were trained by the rabbis for this. Uh, they ensured that every lamb was free of any blemish or injury in order to be used for the Passover sacrifice. As here, since they were instructed by the rabbis, they almost certainly knew of those passages in the Targums, or the Aramaic translations, and the Mishnah associating the birth of Messiah with Migdal Adar, which his birth was associated with that. Uh, for example, Migdal Edar is translated in one of the Targums as, quote, the anointed one of the flock of Israel, end quote. So they would take these lambs that were born, examine them, wrap them in claws. They were made from the old priestly undergarments. I'm sure they were cleaned well before they you know, used it. And place the lamb in a manger or a feeding trough. Now, verse 13 of Luke 2, it says, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let's, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. I mean, this is a, you know, nine, nine and a half month period here. This just, I'm sure every day was an amazing thing happened with Mary and so she's you know now these shepherds come and they're the shepherds that keep watch over the flocks for the Passover sacrifice and uh, you know people will say well it couldn't have been December 25th because you know it was cold out and they didn't keep uh, sheep out in the field during those months which generally might be true but uh, the sheep for sacrifice they kept year round so uh, we're not given the date in scripture you know but and there is a valid argument that can be made for December 25th. There's one that can be made for September sometime, 25th or so. But uh, if the Lord wanted us to know, He would have given us the date. Right. Well, for Mary, all of this would have been further confirmation of the message of the angel to her. And what a contrast between her baby before her and the things that are being said about him. I'm mean, here. She's looking at the baby in the manger now. It's like this looks like a baby. It looks like a definitely like a regular baby here, you know. <laughs> but all these things are being said about her boy, you know, her child. 
And verse 20, it says, The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And uh, when was this? When the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed. Remember from Thursday night? 40 days. Yeah. So this was 40 days. Jesus was 40 days old. They brought him in. Verse 23, as it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So he was the firstborn son. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And this was the poor uh, person's offering. Otherwise, they would be bringing in a sheep. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So here's the Holy Spirit speaking to this man named Simeon and says, you're going to see him before you die. And uh, he came by the Spirit into the temple, verse 27, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. So it just keeps happening, you know. People prophesying over him, and they're just amazed. They're marveling at those things. And Simeon blessed him, verse 34, said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. It's not all going to be rose. These are glad tidings, you know, but there are things happening here. And yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So this whole thing, the, the coming of the Messiah from birth well, conception to resurrection, you know, all these things so that the hearts of, thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. So here she is, she's basically hanging out in the temple full time, you know, and and, uh, seeking God, praying. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So, Anna, these are all confirmations, encouragements for Mary and Joseph. Over in Matthew chapter 2, it says, After Jesus was born, this verse 1, in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And so we find these uh, magi, is the word that's spoken of by them, uh, wise men. I think they were men who were influenced by Daniel and the time that was spent there. And they knew that, you know, from Daniel, Messiah is coming. 
going to be around this time because you remember Daniel 9, the Lord gave him the exact time that, that the Messiah was going to come to the day. And so these guys come, and this is really much later after uh, the birth in Bethlehem. In verse 3 it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And he, when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Again, Micah 5, 2 is what they quote. And apparently they knew it here. Later on, some of them were saying, ah, we don't know where the Messiah will be from. You know, So they, some of them had lost that knowledge at least. And it says, when, then Herod, in verse 7, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. He's got some ulterior motives, of course. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. This is not a normal star or an arrangement of planets or constellations. This is a supernatural star. It takes them right to the spot where Jesus is. So it's, it's you know, everything we're reading about is pretty supernatural. It's a lot of supernatural stuff going on, you know, God doing miracles during this whole period of time here. So, yeah, he wants to come and worship him also. So the star comes over where the young child was, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, you know, kingly, frankincense, priestly, and myrrh, uh, deathly. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. And so uh, he tells them not to go back and tell them where they found the child, and so they go and back home. And when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt. Stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. So the wise men told him when they first saw the star appear. Uh, he may have added some time there just to make sure he got everything, but this is, you know, a year and a half, two years uh, after the birth of Jesus when this uh, slaughter takes place. He wants to make sure he's got the age group, and I don't know, this Herod. If he hadn't been told Bethlehem, he probably would have started killing babies all over the place, you know. And it's amazing maybe that he didn't go beyond this this place. 
So he was exceedingly angry. He sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under. So it was a would have been a small village, but the surrounding districts, we don't know how many children would have been included in that. Uh, so dark times again. Joseph and Mary warned so that they flee with Jesus. And he says in verse 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So this slaughter of the babies was also. And, you know, this is uh, given to us figuratively in Revelation. The devil uses evil Herod to try and destroy Jesus as a child. In Revelation 12, again, verses 3 through 5, it says, John says he saw another sign in the heavens, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of the heaven, and he throws them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, being about to bear, so that when she bears, he might devour her child. And she bore a son, a male, who was going to shepherd all the nations with an iron staff, and her child was caught up away to God and to his throne. So he's preserved, and then he ascends to the Father. On verse 19 of uh, Luke 2, I think it is, when Herod was dead, am I still in Luke 2? You know, we're kind of weaving... We're kind of weaving these things together. Is this Matthew when Herod was... Oh, this is still Matthew. And when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. And he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. So this would have been a, a different Herod, son of Herod. Uh, and apparently he would have been, he was perceived to be more moderate than Archelaus. And so they go to Nazareth. He came and dwelt in that city of Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. This uh, appears to be a takeoff on the Hebrew word of Netzer. Nazarene, because Jesus did not have the vow of a Nazarite. Uh, in Isaiah, we see it in Isaiah uh, verse, or chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch, and Netzer shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. And so uh, he goes on to talk about the millennial period after this time with the wolf lying down with the lamb and so forth. In Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, it also speaks about the branch. It's not the same word, but it's the same concept. He says uh, in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, 
A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness, or Yahweh Tidkenu. So in Luke chapter 2, again, then verse 39 and 40, it says, When they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. The most important part of his birth into this world was that he might be the sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world. He could not die unless he first was born. And he could not rise from the dead unless he first had died. He could not be the Savior unless the redemption price was paid. And only one price could suffice. No other path to reconciliation with God is a valid path. One more passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15-22. through 22. Peter, exhorting the believers he's writing to, says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, reverence for God, awe of God knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. As we celebrate Jesus' birth, we must remember his purpose in coming. He did not remain a babe, but he grew into the Son of Man who gave his life to redeem all who would believe in him. Those who celebrate Christmas without coming to Jesus for forgiveness of sin and everlasting life miss out on the greatest gift that Jesus came to give. Most of the people who celebrate Christmas stop at Christmas. They never go on to the fullness of the glad tidings. We who have received this greatest gift from God must also remember that He has promised to come again to receive His own unto Himself. So we must watch and be ready for His coming, our eyes ever turned upward to the clouds of heaven.